0: the Lonely Writers Podcast, where we discuss the very real and often overlooked emotional labor that comes with the writing process, before, during, and even after the book deal. I'm your host, Eden Boudreaux, and today I am thrilled to be talking with Karma Brown, an award-winning journalist and best-selling author of five novels, as well as her first nonfiction book, The 4% Fix, How One Hour a Day Can Change Your Life. When Karma is not conquering the publishing industry, she is typically hashtag procrastinating and tackling her bucket list just outside Toronto with her husband, daughter, and Labradoodle named Fred. Thank you, Karma, for coming and chatting with me today. I'm so excited.
1: Uh-huh. Thanks for having me, Eden. I'm happy to
0: be here. Of course. And I swear once I'm done with this podcast, if I ever am someday, I'm just going to have a podcast about authors' interesting dog names. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the amount of authors I talk to with a, like adorable names for their dogs that are so like just so out there. I, I love it. Fred is, that's the perfect name for a Labradoodle. I can't think of and a better it, one. It does. No.
1: And it suits him so perfectly. And his middle name is
0: Licorice. I was
1: just telling a friend of mine <laughs> that this morning, Fred Licorice. He only gets that name used when he's naughty, you know, the way oh, that you would use middle names with kids. Right. But of course, Fred. he rarely hears his middle name because he's a very good boy, of course, but oh, perfect. there is, you know, on occasion, <laughs> you have to throw it out there just to, to keep you know, to to keep them understanding that you're still in order.
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, speaking of being in charge and keeping order, the 4% fix is, you know, it's such an interesting concept. And, you know, as we were talking before we started recording, I think that it's something as authors and as creatives, we don't, I think we all feel like we're kind of flailing for the answer or for a solution to how to organize our lives and how to prioritize writing and creating in a world where, especially as mothers and as women, uh, we're just constantly being pulled in a million different directions. So mm-hmm. tell our listeners a little bit more about the four percent fix. you know, how you you came to write it and what is you know, what is it about?
1: Okay. Well, I I will try to keep this brief, but I may end up just (laughs) all over the place
0: uh, because it was a
1: book that I did not, it was a book that I was commissioned to write. And that's an unusual thing, especially as a, as a fiction writer. I mean, that's not Mm -hmm. the type of thing that typically happens, right? Although I have heard it's happening more in conjunction with Netflix, but that's a whole world I don't understand about (laughs) um, and probably will not join. But for this book, I have been getting up at, around 5am, sometimes earlier to write for years, years, uh, probably since my daughter was just under one, and she's almost 14. And I started doing it out of necessity, uh, because she woke up very early. And so you cannot let your toddler run around alone at 5am, or 3am actually, is when she used to first get up that is frowned upon. So I would be up with her. And then I was not um, I was not a novelist at that time. I was not an author, but I had an idea for a book that I wanted to write. And so I started eking out small chunks of time in those early morning hours for my own writing. And I got pretty skilled as many mothers, parents do at sort of finding those moments of focus in and amongst the chaos that's happening when you have children underfoot. And you know, one, you know, one word, the next word, the next day, the next week. And I wasn't, it wasn't an everyday thing at that time. Um, I just couldn't do it every day. But suddenly, you know, I had chunks of a book that I had managed to, to write. And once she got a little older and started sleeping in a little more, I just realized it was the time of day that was quiet. Um, it's peaceful. I have a fresh brain because I have hopefully, you know, a little less so now as I'm almost 50, but hopefully had a restful sleep (laughs) and am ready to just think about my story and jump into that world. And I wrote, I mean, I really have written most of my books in those early morning hours, because I just realized how beneficial that time was. No one needs me um, you know, I have an inbox maybe that's got some emails that need to be responded to, but that no one's expecting an email at 5 a.m. So I could just dedicate that time to myself. So then we fast forward a bunch of years, and and I had been writing uh, my first few novels were with Harlequin and HarperCollins. And HarperCollins knew in particular that I had this early morning writing routine because it was something that was often discussed in interviews and in marketing materials for my books. Um, And so they approached me and said, We would love you to write a book about getting up at 5 a.m. to write, you know, to do that thing that you've always wanted to do, but never thought you'd have the time for. Because, well, it's my job now in the earlier days. And, you know, for a number of years, it was my hobby, it was my passion. It was this I really want to get one book written and get it on the shelf goal. And so, you know, then I quickly realized it's very hard to write a whole book about getting up at 5 a.m. to write a book. Um, (laughs) You need to do a lot else. You need to fill in a lot of other blanks within that. So that became, it was a fairly long and twisty journey to get that book written. Uh, But that's where, that's the origin story of of the 4% fix. That's how it all began. And I still get up very early. Even now, whether I'm writing or not, it is just...
0: A habit. I love that. I, I love that, you know, it wasn't titled the the 5 a.m. writers club or the something like that. Because <laughs> what I think is important about that four percent what we're talking about there is showing that we can make the time. Mm -hmm. and it's so funny because I remember years ago when I first started contemplating even contemplating being a writer as a full-time job I had just recently retired from a different career and same thing I had kids underfoot we had just relocated to Ontario and so I just was like there's not enough hours in the day how do people do this you know and I read this piece this article where they were saying you know if You feel like you're swamped all day long and you never have the time to eke out one hour to work out or to cook your favorite meal or to go to a class or a course uh, for something that you love and enjoy, but your water heater breaks and the repairman tells you we can only come between uh, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. and you have to be there. Mm -hmm. Somehow we find those three hours to be there because we prioritize Getting the water heater fixed. And it was such a simple analogy of prioritizing what we needed to do that made me think okay, I'm going to literally schedule in my, you know, whether it be on the family calendar or whatever, I'm going to schedule one hour. Mom is writing. You can't bug me for a snack. You can, dad can handle bath time, whatever it is. And It like you said, you get you start to get these little chunks and you put them together eventually. And then it becomes for me, what was most important was it became less difficult to give myself the permission to take the time. Right. And you know, for yourself, you had that 5 a.m. And like you said, you didn't have emails, nobody needed you. But once you started working more as an author, now you've got interviews you've got to go to. You've got book signings you've got to go to. And, you know, the kids still have playdates and they still have school and need new clothes. How did you get to a place where you gave yourself the permission to not feel guilty about not being at all of those, you know, that that saying like, I have to do all these other things that, you know, maybe aren't bringing in an income because I'm doing an interview or this, but, I know that it's beneficial to my career and the things that I want to pursue. How did you get to that place where you gave yourself the permission?
1: I think I'm still getting to that place. I mean, guilt is such a tricky emotion. And um, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do more recently is to say no, and not because it maybe isn't something that I wouldn't like to do, or it might be a good thing to do. But if I just don't have the time or the space or the focus... You know, as you said, with the priorities, like you need to be really clear about what's important to you. And once you figure that out, then you have to start protecting that. And we cannot do everything. Uh, We want to, and we try to, and inevitably most of us fail over and over and over again, trying to be everything to everyone and do everything that we want to do. And with the 4% fix, you know, 4% is just that one hour of a day. And so you're looking for that time. That's all that you need to find. I appreciate that there are people who do not have an hour. They don't have 15 minutes and they really don't. But most of us do. And, you know, you just think about just take one day. If you believe that you don't have time, take a day or take a few days and track everything that you're doing and how you're spending your time. Um, I have weirdly gotten hooked on this dots game. I am not a gamer. I sort of wish I was because I love the, uh, the, the escapism idea of that. Mm. But there's this silly Instagram dots game where you're just connecting dots. I, I think I'm on level 400 now because I have become obsessed with it. And there are days where I have easily spent an hour, you know, at, right. throughout the day, if you add it all together, playing this dumb dots game. Um, which I'm really enjoying though, because I do find it kind of meditative. <laughs> so, you know, you have the time, you just, mm-hmm. it's how you're choosing to use it. And for some people like me, the morning is the best time because that is where I can most easily find the time for myself. So there's less guilt because no one else is awake. I don't need to be at a job. I don't need to be sitting in a desk. Um, my kids are like, my kid is old enough now that she's sleeping in, you know, until her alarm goes off. So that works for me, but for other people, it may be right now, like middle of the day, lunchtime, it could be in the afternoon sometime. It could be after the kids go to bed at night, it could be late at night. It doesn't really matter when it is. I advocate for morning for a number of reasons, like having a fresh brain and consolidating everything that's happened over the course of the day before. As you sleep, it all gets consolidated into the lovely memory stores and you start your day fresh. So I do think there are good reasons to do the morning, but that's not for everyone. Um, The point is to try to find that time, and the guilt is a separate piece, and you cannot ignore it. But you know, I I I I have uh, like one of the sessions I had done with my therapist a little while ago, and she was talking because everyone's in therapy also now. The (laughs) pandemic is of course. The pandemic has been probably good for that, but she was talking about being kind with yourself, the way that you would be kind with other people that you care about. Mm -hmm. And for me, if I had a good friend who came to me and said, this is important to me, this is something I love, Um, I don't feel like I have time to do it, I think I can get the time, but to do so I have to maybe say no to something else or put some boundaries around my family and I feel guilty. And if a friend came to me and said that, I would be like, well, you deserve that as much as everyone else. You deserve that time as much as your family deserves it. Um, Like, why are you not giving yourself the same importance? And so it is that being kind to yourself, it doesn't eliminate the guilt, but it's like, how would you talk to a dear friend about that particular issue and then turn it around and and focus it on yourself? Uh, Because we do all deserve that.
0: Of, opportunity. of course. And it's also allowing people to give you that support and that space, you know, I mean, I can't count how many times my husband would say, no, babe, like I got this, I can make dinner. Like you go, right. It's, you know, if you've got the inspiration now go do it. And it's funny that you mentioned talking to your therapist, because, uh, I was just recently talking to my therapist and she and I had a really interesting conversation about caregiving and caretaking. And Mm -hmm. that is, that is a huge thing about being a caregiver, someone who feels like, you know, they get a lot of satisfaction out of being the one who nurtures and who takes care of and who plans and schedules the day. But we are also incredibly difficult to receive someone giving us care. And that is, like you said, that is the kind of thing is you really have to like, you know, put yourself almost in the position of the people that you're taking care of or you love, how would you want them to receive and and allow yourself to do that, you know, that, that's. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful thought. So let's take it back then. Like you said, way before you had uh, been approached to do the 4% fix, you're finding your time at 5.00 AM. Was this something the urge to write? Was this something that came to you later in life? Or were you like most of us, like angsty teens with big journals filled with (laughs) writing and, and hiding away with books? Like, was it something you always wanted or it came later in life?
1: I was always a huge reader. I have always been a huge reader Um, and sadly for me one of the worst things about the pandemic is that it has taken away my ability to focus on long-form reading and I hope I feel like maybe I'm getting it back but it's been two years like it just uh, obliterated that for me but my whole life I have been a huge reader hiding under the covers with my books and my flashlight and because was in the <laughs> 70s, we had no devices. So it was books always. Yes. Um, I dabbled in writing, you know, I wrote little stories when I was a kid and my mom just beautifully had them put into books for me, which was the sweetest Aww. thing. But I never wanted to be an author or a writer. I wanted to be a TV news anchor. And that was my sort of dream job. So after I did my undergrad, I went to journalism school um, and thought that I would, that was going to be my path. I would, you know, do broadcast journalism, and then I would anchor the news. I wanted to be a war correspondent. I had all these like now I'm like, what a war correspondent. That is not <laughs> something I would choose to do now that I'm older and just appreciate my life, I think in a different way. Right. But um, I, so I came to writing even in journalism school. And I was in my, like, I was in my late, late twenties. Uh, people would say, well, do you want to, do you want to write? You want to be a newspaper writer? And I was always like, no, I don't want to write. I want to do TV. And then I, and that was always the plan. So then after graduating, I was planning to go um, on a trip to Australia for a couple of months. I was hoping to come back and work at the CDC where I had interned during school. And then I got cancer. And so that took my life. I mean, I was 30. It just completely flipped everything upside down for me. And I realized I didn't really want to go into Northern Canada and you know try to, to start creating a foundation for this broadcast career that would probably see me going all over the place and having very little work-life balance. Um, And I decided that, you know, that wasn't going to be the thing. So I started writing for magazines, which I loved more than I thought I would. Um, And then had an idea for a book. And I thought, well, why not? Like, how different can it be from an article? Right. Uh, It is so different. It's so different. I mean, storytelling is storytelling, but it is really different. Yeah, I learned that very quickly. So, but I just had this goal. I just thought, well, I'm going to write at least one book. And then it was, I want to write a book that I can get on the shelf that is like a legacy for my daughter. You know, there was just something very physical about um, having a physical representation of all that hard work and sacrifice and, you know, the. Creativity and just having it sit on the shelf. And so that mm. became my goal. And I was just going to keep writing until that happened. Um, it did take me three books to get one published. And that was my third book written. Was my debut. My first two books have not been pulled out of the drawer. They will
0: not be published
1: again. <laughs> we I all, all time,
0: have those skeletons.
1: <laughs> I know people always like. Well, do you think now you'll bring those out and maybe publish them? It's like, no, they were practice books. They were not good enough. Um, you know, I know that now. I knew it all, really at the time. I could tell, but. You know, I, I fell into, I, mean, I didn't publish my first book until I was 40. I really fell into that, well, maybe even 41. I can't remember. How old am I now? Um, <laughs> I fell into that career and then realized how much I loved it. And, you know, when I'm talking to my daughter about this, I'm always saying you don't have to choose. I had multiple careers. I worked in consulting. I worked as a journalist. I you know, Ben was like, maybe I want to be a lawyer. And I didn't. So I didn't do that. And you know, here I am. So it just, this is my sort of second half of life career. And I love it. But I'm not sure it will be my last career either. So we'll see.
0: I think that's a beautiful sentiment for people to hear, though, because, you know, I know we see the, you know, the tagline, you're never too old to start something new. I know we see that, but sometimes it's so hard to believe when we see so much media focused on 20 somethings, Mm -hmm. finding their passion and falling into these, you know, amazing careers that follow their whole lives. And there's just so many of us that that's not the way it works. And, you know, like you said, like I also had a whole life before writing. I mean, I did a decade in hair and makeup, which is not even in the realm of publishing (laughs) or writing, not even (laughs) like most people are kind of adjacent to it. It's still creating and there was still art to it because I worked in a lot of fashion and I worked in a lot of film, So there was still a storytelling to it, but it was something that was just, you know, it was a part of my life at that time. And then I had always loved writing. So I got to, like you said, I got to kind of move on to that second act in your life.
1: And Mm -hmm. I think it's
0: really important for listeners who are coming up to those second acts or in that period of the life where they're like, well, but what's the point? Like I've got grandkids. Like the point is to do something that you love regardless of how old you are or what stage of life you're in. Yeah. Um, And also
1: I think like you, you don't know what you might love. I mean, I loved reading novels, loved reading. I love reading and I never considered writing. I don't know mm-hmm. why. It just never occurred to me. And so this idea, I think there's this perpetual idea that all authors, or anyone who's in a really creative industry has always wanted to do that. And so they've worked diligently, you know, eye on that prize all the way along a few dips and and you know hills and climbs and valleys and other things. but that's not true for everyone. And so, right you know, there are lots of us who that's a different path that we've ended up on and may have never found it if we weren't open to trying different things, exploring what might get us excited and what we're interested in. And that's part of what the 4% fix I'm advocating for too. It's like, be curious, be curious about everything that you're doing. And don't, you know, don't allow yourself to be pigeonholed into anything either by age or by skill, Um, I had no idea how to write a book and I figured it out and I taught myself and here I am and I'm still learning all the time. But yeah, this I personally, and I'm biased of course, but I would rather read a book by someone who's 40 plus and has had some life experience. I think that that is just a more interesting place to start from. Again, I'm biased and, you know, kudos to all the 20 year olds (laughs) writing bestselling novels, but big kudos to those who are in that like 40 plus category or close to that, who are going out on that limb and and doing that in that second part of life. I think Mm -hmm. that is courageous in a different way
0: it's it's definitely courageous in a different way and i also think and again i same thing kudos to anyone in their 20s who can write a novel i didn't have the attention span for it and i was probably too hungover so i don't know how you're doing it but i think it's also it's a much more authentic voice because you know something i always talk to writers about is the difference between um, imitation and appreciation. And when I first started writing, I wrote what I was reading because, mm-hmm. same thing, I loved re- reading. But, like, when I tell you the books I used to read compared to what I read now, I was, you know, it was urban fantasy and it was like sci fi and like all these kind of things. And that was what I first started out reading, writing, but it wasn't my voice. I was right. echoing the voices of the people that I had read and loved. And I would never in a million years have ever thought about writing memoir, like to the point that I was like, who the hell wants to hear me talk about my life? But once I started writing personal essays and, you know, finding my authentic voice from my experiences in life, all of a sudden I realized even though, you know, I may not stick with nonfiction forever, I realized that my voice was not in the world of uh, fantasy or mystery or anything like that. My voice was in a more, you know, human experience type Mm -hmm. story. And if I had started trying to write when I was 25 or 30, I would have just, you know, how many trunk books would I have had of, you know, these super natural stories that never (laughs) went anywhere because it wasn't my authentic voice. And so I think whether it's being that it's later in life or it's just a case of finding your narrative in your voice within writing, once you get there, wherever that is in life, that's, I think, when you hit that sweet spot of, of being able to finally have something that you are proud to put out in the world, you know? Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think like nonfiction, you know, it's so interesting about voice. I, People who know me in real life and have read The 4% Fix, which is my only nonfiction to date and probably will only be my only nonfiction (laughs) to date. You know, they're like, "It, it sounds like you. I can hear you on my shoulder reading this story to me, which is a huge compliment. I'm very happy to hear it because that was so important to me to have it be authentic. Not like a like slightly bossy, but in a very friendly, helpful way, <laughs> yes. um, which is sort of my personality. I can be a little bossy, and um, you know, assertive is is more the word. But <laughs> I feel like bossy does fit. But nonfiction for me is not an escapist at all, and so I found it very challenging to spend so much time focused on my own story and mining my experiences and my memories uh, for content for that book and then trying to string it all together I just got it was it was too much introspection in some ways and I you know back to the journal thing like I desperately tried to be a journal writer because in the 80s uh, like late 70s 80s when I was sort of in that coming of age time everybody was journaling. And I remember, I mean, you had a diary. It wasn't a journal right like now. Um, and it was very much the dear diary. Here's what I did today. And I hated doing it. I did it for a while because I thought that's what we were supposed to do. And my diary had a little lock on it. And I would diligently right. lock it at night as if there was anything happening in there that was going needed to be locked up. But I never felt authentic even then doing it, and I don't journal now because it's the same thing. I feel like I'm putting on some sort of different personality from who I am and and ticking some box. Um, I appreciate why it's useful and why it works for people. It just has never worked for me. So fiction is my jam because I get to, I get to put my own feelings and thoughts because of the type of fiction I write. So I get Mm. to put a lot of myself in there, but I get to build a world and build these characters and give them, you know, these whole interesting lives that have nothing to do with me. Um, But I get to go and hang out with them in those lives. And there's nothing more fun than that. So, you know, I never imagined how much joy writing could bring in that way, how much I love that part of it, Um, which again, just goes back to the always be curious and keep trying different things so that you don't end up wondering. I mean, you, you may try something. And then like I tried to knit again recently because I have this idea that I should be able to knit a blanket and it will be soft. And every time I pull it up over myself, when I'm cuddling up to read, I will feel happy and satisfied and really productive that I knit this beautiful blanket, but I cast on over Christmas and I have not done another row. <laughs> on my blanket. So, you I know, sometimes that. you just have to accept that like you keep trying. It's not maybe the right thing, but
0: you know, you will know. It's, exactly. And you know what? And it's, and I'm, I'm laughing because you're talking to someone with raging ADHD. So I have a <laughs> closet full of mm. half started projects and my poor husband, he sees, <laughs> you know, he'll see Michael's on the bank statement and we, Oh God, no, she's starting another Here hobby. she goes, <laughs> Yeah. But it's funny because you say curiosity, and you know we're talking in in the lane of trying things for career. But I think it's it's also allowing ourselves to be curious again. I mean, I can't count how many times I'm I'm encouraging and you know excited when my kids find something new and they become curious and excited about it and they want to explore it, and we're always encouraging them. And then we grow up and we lose that. We lose Mm -hmm. that permission to be curious about anything. And that takes me to the next thing that I want to talk about because you know you have this beautiful background in journalism, which is quite serious. And then you have your books which always have these really like just this depth and dimension. And, And then you, along with one of our past guests, Marissa Stapley, went and decided to co-write a romance novel which is so fun and exciting and so what made you curious about the idea of writing romance coming you know kind of entirely into a different world of writing what got you excited about that
1: I, I for me I don't really like um the idea of being branded As an author, it is something that I should like the idea because that's what people would like you to do. And by people, I mean the publishing industry in particular, because I actually believe that readers, this may be a controversial opinion, but I believe readers read across the board. And, you know, I'm one of those readers. I read all sorts of different things because I'm interested in different things. And I know there are some people for whom, like all they want to read is romance or all they want to read is historical fiction. And that's great, like, you know the thing that you love and, you know, go get it. But as a writer, I don't want to have to write the same type of thing over and over again. It doesn't mean that the themes won't be the same or that, you know, like I think right now I'm working out my, my feminism, my different waves of feminism through my stories. And so in the books I'm writing for my solo, Uh, as a solo author, I'm still kind of working those out. And I haven't quite finished that, that theme yet, but then I will probably move on. And the romance thing was just, uh, it was just started with this conversation where Marissa and I were at different stages of our own book journeys. Um, I do not love promotion because I am an introvert, despite no one believes this, but I truly am an introvert. I can just be extroverted if I need to be. And I, so promotion's tricky for me and she was in edits and she is not, she loves the promotion. And I think she's coming around to edits, but was not crazy about editing at that time. Um, Cause it's hard. It's hard. It is hard work. It's all hard work, is. but we just thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could like swap for a little while? And, Cause I love edits and she loves promotion. And then we were talking about, well, wouldn't it be fun if you only had to do sort of like half the work, like you had someone to collaborate with right. and then we thought, and actually, I think our first idea was to write a thriller together and um, not, then that did not last long because we, were, we, I think even in that same conversation, we were like, no, we don't <laughs> want to write a thriller. <laughs> we're, we're, that's not, that's not where we want to go with this because right. we wanted it to be fun and light and different, like really different, not sad, not angsty, you know, Mm. just different. And that's where that started. And it was, it was fun and different and a great experience. And I'm, that may be it for me. Like, I think I've probably done my romance writing.
0: Right. Um, I love that, but it brought, it sounds like it brought you to so much joy. And that is something that we're constantly talking about here is finding a way To remember the joy of writing because it like you said it's Mm -hmm. all hard everything you know a lot of the time podcasts and articles and things like that we talk about the before but once you get the book deal there's still so much work and it can be very slogging so to be able to carve out those moments of joy in the writing is so beautiful and fun
1: yeah, and I think even beyond the joy for me, it was the challenge of doing it. I mm-hmm. I have written fiction. I mean, I've done my journalism, and I've written fiction, and I've written nonfiction, and now I've read, written holiday romance. And the challenge of trying to write something that's outside of what is your normal type of writing is fun. You know, maybe I'm doing my own journaling, but like with books that right. <laughs> But, but, you know, I have an amazing agent who every time I go to her, I recently went, like, my next book is probably going to be quite different from anything I've written before. And that's all I will say about that. But I, (laughs) you know, every time I take an idea to her, uh, she's always like, I love it, like, do it, let's go. So, you know, she also understands that I am not willing to be just hemmed into something I like the ability to challenge myself, to try something new. Right. Um, and and really the romance, like it was fun in that way. And being able to write a happy ending and, and putting it out at Christmas when everyone loves Christmas and everyone loves their Christmas romances, like that was a quite... A joyful experience because often you know I, I write books that tend to get like some hate mail sometimes and uh, you know that was a sort of a nice change to to just have the other side of that but um, you know I I did miss sort of the being able to really dig into an issue thing uh, so it was a nice transition to go back from the the rom com to. Right what you know for me is just a little more of a meaty uh, idea but right I mean never say never who knows what I will write in the future but I like well to I think you're such
0: I think you're just such a a wonderful example of, like you said, the cross genre, because I I think it's changing. I'd like to say, I think in publishing, it is changing. We're seeing more authors crossing genres, but I still feel like it's very much like they cross from fiction to nonfiction and back. It's Mm -hmm. very rare that we're seeing, you know, let's say a women's upmarket fiction crossing over into a thriller and then back into that. And then maybe tackling a romance. Um, but I agree with you. I don't think that, I think actually a prime example of how readers and consumers of media are, have tastes across the board are the, is the trend of true crime with meat with mm-hmm. women. And so I know if they're like myself, I spend my days listening to podcasts about grisly crimes. Yeah. And then yeah. in, you know, the evening time when I'm, you know, when I'm, uh, let's say, settling down for the night, I turn on my real housewives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those, you know, two things, those paths do not cross, but People are consuming so much more these days Mm -hmm. and across such a wide spectrum that I don't think authors should be boxed in, like you said, to these brands of being the thriller writer or the um, feminist writer who only writes about, you know, burning bras and fuck the patriarchy. Like, why can't they write a corset busting romance? (laughs) Well, I think you
1: can. This is the thing. You can, but it's a risk. And the reason it's a risk is because it is hard to build readership. It's hard to build readership, period. It is so hard to get people to read your book. And I understand from the marketing and publicity departments why they want something that feels branded because it is an easier way to build. You know, if they've invested in you as an author, you're working to build that that readership over time. And sometimes for some books and some authors, it happens straight out of the gate. But for most of us, it is a long building process. Um, I And, you know, I think even for some of my books, like my first four b- books were quite different from my next two books that I've written, you know, that are more sort of the commercial fiction, um, feminist type of stories. But my voice is likely quite familiar. If you go back and read my debut and then you read like Recipe for Perfect Wife, you, you probably don't feel like you're reading two totally different authors just because I do have a style and I have my voice and that comes through. Um, you know. But despite the fact that it's harder maybe to build your readership, I think, and this is one of the benefits of being a little bit older coming into this game now, is that I'm more interested in serving my own needs around what I want to do and what I'm interested um, in, pushing, how I'm interested in pushing myself and what I want my legacy to be at the end than I am in trying to write to a brand or to this idea that that's really the way you need to do it. I, I was less like that when I first came into the industry, for sure um and that was not even that long ago but now i just and the pandemic has only solidified that for me um you know like this is it this is your one life so you should be doing with it precisely what you want and hopefully being kind you know to others as you do so and not stepping over people or you know whatever it is to try to get to that next level but yeah i just I kind of want to do what
0: floats my boat. When it comes to my writing, there's two things there that I I want to, I want to pick out because I think are, are so interesting. I think what you're saying, talking about getting to a point where you're thinking, okay, I want to write what I want to write. I think that that genuinely goes a long way to finding your authentic voice in writing. Because when I look back, you know, I have on my wall in my office, you know, some of my early essays. And when I look back at them, I love what I wrote about. But when I read the paragraphs, it's not my words Hmm. because there's such heavy editing when you're first starting out. Right. And you, of course, like you said, you don't want to rock the, you know, the boat and you often will of course take the advice of people who've been in the industry longer, but it's not your style it's not your mm-hmm. narrative tone um whether it's the cadence in which you write or whether you you know i know when i first started out I, everyone you're so wordy you're so wordy and now that's the thing people seem to like about my writing yeah. and it was because i decided to lean into it and say okay mm-hmm. this is my voice and i want i do not want to put something out there that doesn't sound like me that doesn't sound like a a you know, cleaned up, shined up version of me. Yes. And I think that that really, really lends itself to finding your voices when you decide that I'm going to do this for me. And of course, I'm going to take the advice of people who know, but yes. I'm also going to balance that with what I know is authentic and genuine for me. And, yeah. you know, and the other part of that I, I wanted to ask was, how, you know, being someone who you went to school for journalism and for broadcast, uh, but you you did not go to school for creative writing, I would assume. Mm-hmm. So how did you kind of, was it trial and error? Or how did you kind of come to that place where you were able to start to craft the way that you write? Was it just practice over time Probably.
1: I don't really know. You know, I think a lot of the the
0: articles that I wrote, like most of my
1: journalism, I wrote for lifestyle magazines. And so there was a lot of that storytelling happening. And uh, at a you know, there's always some kind of analogy that I was using, whether it was mine or someone else's. There was depth to those stories. Um, You know, I wrote a lot of what I would call like fluffier stuff, but I also wrote some deeper, heavier things. Uh, And that gave me the opportunity to learn how to emote through my writing and to make people feel something with my words. But it is practice. And it's also, you know, like you said, with the editing, like you really have to learn to take critique and to take feedback. And probably the greatest gift my journalism degree gave me was the ability to take critique and feedback and to do something with it because it it was out of control. The red pen situation in journalism school, it was intense. It was aggressive and you didn't have any time. Like with book writing, you have time to go back. You often have weeks to go back and just go, Hmm, how do I feel about these edits to my manuscript with, I'd submit like a thousand words. This is true in magazines too. And the edits you get back are fast. They are often deep and you have to just make the changes um, because this is not just your story. It also belongs to the magazine who has paid you for it. So if you're writing for, for a traditional publisher and you have an editor and there is a marketing team and there is a budget going into your book, you probably shouldn't be precious about everything that you have written. Um, it is not in your best interest, nor is it in the best interest of the book and its journey because you really want, you know, it is a partnership. All my editorial relationships are partnerships. I trust them implicitly with their feedback. And I push back sometimes on something, but it's like with kids, like choose the Hill, you know, the whole choose the Hill you're going to die on. You can't, it can't be every Hill always and so there is that's one of the benefits of having done it for a few years too is that you start to learn when to push back like when your gut is like no I have to keep this this way right and when you just have that feeling like I have to keep it this way but it's actually just your initial defense mechanism kicking in and then if you go away and think about it you realize that that person was right Um, right or you try it differently. And you're like, Oh, you know what, that does work better. So that's happened enough times to me that now I understand the different feelings of those two pieces. But I'm not precious about my books. I never have been or my writing. Um, I really truly never have been. And I don't know if that's because again, I came to it later, I, I came to it from this roundabout way. It wasn't this like lifelong dream that I had been carrying with me for 40 years by the time it happened. Right. It was, you know, it was this new thing that was fun and I was excited about it and I just thought, well, let's see where this goes. So maybe, you know, if it is a lifelong dream and you're feeling very precious about what you've, what you've crafted um, that can be tougher, but that's probably like, I think the most important thing is learning to take feedback.
0: I a hundred percent agree, and you know, two things on that is, if you are to, like you said, when you're working for magazines, they get a snippet of you because generally you're pitching them. You got three hundred words to sell them on what you want to write for them, and in those three hundred words, they decide yes, this is a good fit for us, or it's not. And like you said, it's it's part their reputation, it's part yours. So everybody has a hand in the pot, but if you get to the point where you're with a publisher, they've read probably a manuscript or a very, very detailed book proposal. So they already love your voice. And in the experience, my experience so far with edits is it's, they're never trying to change my voice. They're trying to change the way we're arranging it and I'm presenting it. And I agree. You do have to, you know. I I always had friends saying, kill your darlings because it's there's just no point in keeping a a sentence that you're so madly in love with that someone who has been in the industry for 10 plus years, marketing, publishing, is like, this is not going to go over well. (laughs) You know, you have to learn that sometimes they're looking out for your absolute best interest for sure. But I also do think that, you know, I think we're we're close in generations because I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, and you know, I think some of the younger generations are maybe becoming more precious with their words because they grew up in the blogging era mm-hmm. where, you know, they could just post and put out their thoughts and their writing without having a heavy hand of red marking Uh, you know, somebody to curb this or that or or scale it back a bit. And so I do think that there is a generation that has been able to hold their work in much higher esteem. And it is much harder when someone comes and looks at your baby and is like, that's kind of a fugly baby, you should put a hat on it. So, you know, so I think once you have that life experience, though, of realizing that, the people are there to help you and to make your book a success and your story a success then it's like you said you may have that wounded moment but it is easier to come back and say okay you know what you have a point or let's make a concession about something or a compromise and and work as a team
1: mm-hmm. and
0: so that brings me to one of my my final questions is working as a team that is i mean we can talk about everything from finding the right agent and the right editors and the publishers, but I think so much of being a successful and happy author comes down to the team within our own home and, mm-hmm. you know, and finding that balance of, you know, especially with being an author, we're not getting a check every two weeks. You know, it may not be able to put, you know, pay the power bill on hour income, quote, quote, every two months Mm -hmm. kind of thing or whatever it is. So how were you able to, was it something that was always kind of an easy take and give within your, your home and your, your family unit, or did it take some kind of time to build that team to support you on the journey of being an author?
1: Well, I, I think my husband, I mean, my daughter, you know, because she was growing up as I was writing my books, um, she was less a part of of that. (laughs) Of Um, course. But except for, you know, making sure I was up bright and early to get my words in. Um, (laughs) My husband, you know, we have always been a team. And I met him just a month before I was diagnosed with cancer. So we went through really hard stuff very early on and right. he's also an entrepreneur. And so, you know, another one of us gets a paycheck really, which has always been <laughs> interesting and a little, you know, we're risk takers that way, I suppose. Um, but from the beginning, you know, he wants for me what I want for myself and I want for him, uh, you know, what he wants for himself. And so we have always stayed very true to our goals and, you know, I, that's just like a true partnership. I mean, he helps me create space. There are times I'm the more domestic one in our relationship simply because I work from home. And so when our daughter was young, I was home with her. And I'm the one who often does the dentist appointments and all of that other stuff. You know, I do the grocery shopping. Um, (laughs) So those things all take time, but he is very much a part of like what do you need to get this thing done and how can we help you find space so that you can find the time, you know, when you need that extra block of time to be able to get to that next level or to get that book finished, you know, books are like, it just is like this. And so there are times where you're at the beginning where it's all like, I'm there right now where I'm like, Oh, this idea is not really an idea and I can dabble. And then there's times at the end where I'm at, at like a tough edit and I'm in the very final throes of it and I cannot leave it. I can't leave it be. Right. And so then I have to step away a bit from my family so that I can actually focus. So right. I think it's just, you know, trial and error. Like we've just figured it out as we have gone along. There's been no specific thing that I can share that made that work
0: outside of the fact that he wants me to succeed and I want him to succeed. To right. succeed. So That's beautiful. But I do think, I think that an important thing to take away from that though is it it is an ebb and a flow, a trial and error, but it's also, you know, something with my husband and I that we always have worked on is the kind of like reconvening at points because you get so busy with life and my husband's also, you know, has his own business. And so with kids and businesses in life, you get so busy that sometimes, Mm -hmm. like you said, You almost have to say, okay, we need to, we need to come on back and have like a a team meeting and we need to reassess where the, you know, uh, responsibilities are distributed because I am, like you said, going to be in edits for the next month and my head is going to be frazzled. So, you know, we got to figure out how we're going to do that. And I think that that is really important because in, in a time when we all communicate every day all the time, whether it's Twitter, Instagram posts, liking, sharing, there's so little communication done in relationships. And oh, we yeah. almost assume that the other person will know when we say like, oh, I'm going into edits. We assume that that person knows I'm going to need that means. support. <laughs> yeah.
1: What that uh, you know, I will like, I will give a gift to anyone who has children that are young because our daughter, like we have one kid. And so I understand that a lot of people are like, Oh, that means that's basically having no kids, which is oh, not no. true.
0: Here's a secret. I have three. One <laughs> is way harder. One is way because harder. They never, you
1: are never, there's never the parents and the kids. We are sort exactly. of like a triangular unit in our family. But now that she's a teenager, it is so hard in so many other ways, like, you know, just like mind blowingly difficult in ways mm-hmm. I never could have imagined. But my husband and I have time together that we haven't had since she was a baby, like since she was Mm -hmm. born because she can be home alone. She prefers to have some time home alone now Mm -hmm. when we're not here. And so we'll do things like we can go walk the dog for an hour at night. We catch up. We don't have to race back. You know, she is taking care of herself and wants that independence. Um, you know, we have all these moments, like we have so much time together now that we have not had for well over a decade. And that has changed our relationship. So if you have little kids and you feel like you never speak to your significant other, and you guys are like ships yeah. passing at the night, hold on because it comes back. But then you're mm-hmm. working together to try to figure out how to manage being parents of a teenager, which- right you know, that's conversation for another day and another podcast perhaps, but yeah, I think um, that's
0: called like the bomb squad, how to defuse teenage hormones or yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is, It wildly is a journey, different.
1: but we do get, you know, we have had that opportunity. Like we talk now like deep about deep things and we right. have time to have those conversations and to know where we're at and who needs what. And so there's like less of that sort of resentment that can build up when you're like, don't you see how busy I am and what I need? Right. Um, Cause you want people to see that when you're in, you know, that unit, but it doesn't always work that way exactly. because they're busy too. So anyway, if you have little kids,
0: hang on. The joy,
1: the joy is coming back, and then you lose it. Another side, on the other side. Yeah, but it's okay. It's, it's like the, all ebb just, it's the ebb and
0: flow we talked about. The ebb and flow. Just hold on to the railing. That's all you got to do. Okay.
1: Or the whatever, like one of those life vests. Like hold on to yes. your life vest, and uh you'll be okay. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Okay, so we're going to close out our chat today with a fun little segment that I like to call our weekly fuck yeses. So. Oh. I feel like in this world where, you know, it's burning down around us, we do not take enough time to celebrate the little moments that happen, whether they're uh, something that we were expected or waiting on or something that was completely unexpected that happened. And it just went really right. And it Mm. was that moment where you went, fuck, yes. Thank you. So I want to give you the platform and the space to share with us something recently that just went really, really right. And you were like, yeah, I got to pat myself on the back. I got to celebrate that. What would you say was your recent fuck yes moment?
1: A recent fuck yes moment. Um, you know, this isn't even an accomplishment, but it is just a decision that was made. Okay. So I, right before the pandemic hit, I went to Atlanta to visit with, um, for my friend Colleen Oakley's book launch, because her book was just out. And then two other friends of ours came and met us in Atlanta, and we had this great time celebrating Colleen, hanging out together in Atlanta, going and eating delicious food. And then the pandemic hit, and we all like were just locked down. And these are women who I I know them from the very beginning of my career because we were on this debutante ball blog um, Mm -hmm. for the first year of our publication year. And I got to know them then. So they're very special to me. And we have celebrated each other's progress and watched our book journeys all the way along. So last week, they finally came to Canada and we went to a little cabin in the woods up north and we had this amazing Riders retreat, and we ate too much cheese. And I introduced them to all the Canadian treats, ketchup (laughs) chips, and Nanaimo bars, and all those things. And it was one of those absolutely perfect, fuck, yes, this is exactly what we all needed kind of weeks, none of us had our children or our spouses, Mm -hmm. or any other responsibilities. And it was, it was perfection. So, you know, it sort of bookended the pandemic, but it also gave me and them, but just this beautiful, like lift that we need I to go it. into the next phase. So yeah. it wasn't exactly like a, you know, there was, wasn't a celebratory moment, but it was this very important coming together of good friends, people yeah. who are in the industry and get it. Um,
0: yeah. So, but that's, that was, that's so beautiful. And that's so important that, you know, it's to, to take that time to just say like let's like we all survived it so far like yeah and guilt free also yes. like three of us
1: we all have families colleen has four children Amy has two one of whose wh- whom is waiting for college applications right. to get you know, acceptance it's so everyone's got busy lives and a lot of shit going on yeah and so we just took the whole week and said goodbye.
0: I love <laughs> to it. All
1: of it which is hard to do but we did it and um, but it's so it was necessary.
0: Perfect. Good so for necessary. you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay. Well, thank you again, Karma, for coming on and chatting with me. As amazing as I thought it was going to be. So can you let our listeners know where they can find you online to stay up to date on, you know, everything that you have coming and they can also, you know, find more information on the 4% fix and all that kind of stuff. Where can they find you?
1: Probably the place I'm most active is Instagram. Uh, and it's at karma K Brown and also on Twitter, same handle. That's wow. where you can find, I mean, you can always go to my website. I think mm-hmm. it's on my Twitter handle, um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Perfect. my
1: most up to date Instagram is probably the best place. And I love to chat with people there. And if you have great recipes, I love to bake, please come find me and tell me what it is because I, i like to procrastinate and, uh, that's my, yeah, mm. it's my favorite thing to do.
0: Perfect. And if you want to get your hands on a copy of the 4% fix, I always, I always uh, express to our listeners that hit up your local independent bookstore. And if you don't see Please. one of Karma's books on their shelves, email them, call, because I can tell you these booksellers, they want to put put this book and any of karma's books in your hands so give them a call shoot them an email and uh, hopefully they can get it to you and uh thank you again karma it was such a delight talking thanks Ethan. it was great happy to chat thank you for listening please don't forget to rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you find your favorite show Thank you again, and until next time, lonely writers, be well.